to Hillcrest. Glad you could join us this morning on a, a sunny morning in, in July, but uh, th thank you for being here. If you are a visitor, uh, you uh, will find a little card and that will come up on the, the screen here. It's just a, a, a card that will help us in just getting some information about you and uh, if you want to fill that out and just drop it in the box there in the back or just leave it on the seat. And we would like to uh, know that you are with us and any ways that we could pray for you, we, we want to make sure and do that. But, uh, but again, thanks for, thanks for being here this morning. And I'd like to uh, go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read a scripture verse together. But let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning. And uh, what a great uh, song to start out with. Father, how marvelous, how wonderful you are and your love for us. And Father, we come together this morning, assembling together, and uh, Father, recognizing that, Father, coming to you in, in prayer and in, in worship, and Father, giving you glory, and we pray that this morning, that everything that is said and done, and uh, through the preaching and song and fellowship, Father, would, would give you glory, and we just thank you for how much you love us and uh, this opportunity to, to fellowship together as a body of believers, how special that is to come together every Sunday morning, Father, to honor you and to honor your word and to be obedient in, in doing that. We just thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, the, our scripture passage is Philippians 2, 1 through 4, and uh, let's, let's read that together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any conviction from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any in sympathy, complete my joy, being the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Would you stand with me? Two, three, four. 
unfailing love that you would take my place that you would bear my cross you lay down your life that I would be set free oh Jesus I sing
invite you to remain standing one minute longer if you're able and join me in the letter called after the name of its author Jude Jude and if you're unfamiliar with where Jude is exactly it is the next to last book so flip all the way back to Revelation and turn left Jude want to encourage you not to grow weary as we take in together by way of introduction the entirety of his letter not by the sermon just by reading not that anyone thought that I could do that anyway let's begin Jude a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. 
But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we stand uh, holding your word, uh, may you prepare our hearts and minds Uh, for that which you have to speak to us. We pray that you would use your chosen mouthpiece, but that you would overcome his foolishness, his ineptitudes, and his weaknesses, and that you would, by your Spirit, speak directly to our hearts. Mold us and shape us, teach us, warn us, equip us, and bring us alive from our slumber. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated.
an unusual letter, no? One, no doubt, we are not terribly familiar with. The Bible, as we call it, is a fascinating library of God's inspired words. Genesis, at the near beginning, opens with this repeated refrain, and God said, and God said, right? Let there be light, and God said, let there be the sky, let there be oceans, let there be land, and God said, let us make man in our own image, and God said, and God said. In Revelation, at the other end of the book, some of the closing words come from Jesus speaking, where he says, surely I am coming soon, begins, and God said, It ends, Jesus speaking. In between these two bookend statements on every page, in some manner or form, is God speaking. Such a pervasive theme, God speaking, that Christians often refer to this Bible not as a Bible, nor as the scriptures, but simply as what? God's word. Yeah. This is a precious thing to humanity. God has spoken, revealing himself. In fact, a good theology book has, as an order of operations, a doctrine of God, the person of God, as one of the foundational bits. And then only upon understanding the person of God do you begin to build on to the notions of sin, judgment, humanity, evil, darkness, the atonement, and eternity. So God is at the foundation. You gotta know who God is before you can know who you are before you can know what sin is, before you can know what judgment is, before you can know who Jesus is, before you can know what forgiveness and atonement are. None of it stands up without the foundation of God. But before a good theology book unpacks a doctrine of God, it first unpacks a doctrine of God's word. Because through his word, we are given he is revealed his personhood. It's a precious thing that he has revealed himself. He has spoken his plans, his wisdom, his judgments, his offer of forgiveness. He has spoken. It's for this reason that we stand in honor of the reading of the text. They are not the mere words of man printed on paper, but they are the very words of of God. This claim is reinforced all through the text by prophecy and signs and wonders, miracles that authenticate the message of the man, prophetic utterances that God uses to prove these are his words and not the mere words of men. Lest there be any doubt Predictions are made about the future with stunning accuracy, such that 
generations later, crossing centuries, cultures, languages, and geography, we are left with a library that can be reliably read as the inerrant, inspired word of God. Now, as surely as God is speaking from cover to cover, the enemies of God have sought to undermine his word. In the garden, after God spoke the heavens, the animal kingdom, and mankind into existence, then God said to Adam and Eve, saying, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. No sooner had God spoken these words than are we introduced to the serpent who began to tempt Adam and Eve in their rebellion against God. And how did he do so? Did he tempt them to declare war on God for their independence? Did he tempt Adam and Eve on the basis of God's existence? No. He tempted them on the basis of his word. Did God really say? The devil's most productive schemes begin by eroding a confidence in God's word. In the book, The God Who Judges and Saves, Matthew Harmon, Matthew Harmon puts it this way. In the entire period between Eden and the new Eden, God's enemies actively seek to discredit or dismiss the word of God. According to a yearly survey done by Ligonier Ministries, as of 2022, it hasn't come out yet for this year, more than one-fourth of surveyed professing evangelicals in the United States say the Bible is good and full of sacred writings and ancient myths, but is not actually true. More than a quarter. 56% of that same group believe God accepts the worship of Christians, Jews, and Muslims all alike. In fact, there is no distinction between the worship of any religion in God's eyes. That's 56% of professed evangelicals surveyed. 43% believe Jesus was a good teacher, but not God. A whopping 73% said that Jesus was the first created being, which is a Mormon heresy, as opposed to, of course, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and through the Word everything was made, that was made, nothing was made, that was made, that was not made, through the Word, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Holy, uncreated one. He is called, right? No. Well, finally, 57% of professing evangelicals surveyed agree with the statement that everyone sins a little, but most people are, quote, generally good. Friends, if more than half of the people who claim to be Christians in America think that most people are generally good, 
that Jesus was a created being who was a good teacher and that God receives the worship of all religious traditions equally, we have a serious problem. Where did all of these supposed professing Christians get these terrible ideas? Not from the Bible, not from faithful Bible teachers. Who taught them this? And who affirmed their claims of Christianity while they reject the person and work of Jesus? The answer is found in verse four of Jude's letter. For certain people have crept in, perverting the gospel. The NIV says they have slipped in through the cracks, as it were, perverting the gospel for their own perverse and greedy gain as agents of deception. The message of Jude is then timely for the reasons I just mentioned. That survey is but the tip of the iceberg of the heresies floating around in the supposed evangelical church today, so much so that John MacArthur estimates most people in America who believe themselves or claim to be Christians are in fact not. Most. That's a startling summary. And so the message of Jude is timely, but it's also timeless for the word of God has been being undermined since the Garden of Eden and it has not been stopped being undermined ever since. This is a long war against God and so comes the subtitle, Jude, the long war against God. I called today's installment the next chapter in the long war against God. And so this morning, by way of introduction to this letter, which we'll spend a number of weeks observing and scouring and considering carefully, we'll consider today just three things of introduction. We'll consider first and foremost, if you're taking notes, the author. We'll consider the author. He calls himself by three names, or excuse me, by three titles. First, he calls himself Jude. In the Greek, it's the name Judas. In the Hebrew, it's the name Judah. And of course, Bible students would recognize the name Judah and perhaps the name Judas. No wonder it was such a popular name at the time of Jesus. Judah, of course, the, the son of Jacob who did not forfeit his right as the firstborn the way that his older brothers had and so he becomes the inheritor of the, the rights of the firstborn such that the leader of the nation, the rightful king, should Israel put one on a throne, would come from the tribe of Judah. The southern kingdom, as it became known, was, cons- was made up of the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And then the, the ten northern tribes the other ten sons were wrapped up in idolatry for the most part of the split, of their split from 
the rest of the nation. They held out for a few hundred more years because of their obedience to the scriptures before the Babylonian invasion, during which time many from the other tribes fled to the land of Judah and lived with them. It is their lineage and their genealogy that is kept most pure over the course of history, and it would have been considered an honorable thing to name your son after the ancient forefather Judah. And so there were many. There was Judas Iscariot, who famously betrayed Jesus. There was Judas not Iscariot, as the gospel writers are very clear to point out. He was also called Thaddeus. There was Judas Barsabbas in Acts 15. There was Judas the Galilean in Acts chapter 5. Calls himself Jude, Judas. The expectation or the assumption is that Jude shortened his name from Judas to Jude to eliminate the association with the famed betrayer. We assume then that he is the brother of Jesus, for he is the brother of James. This note helps us narrow down which Judas wrote the letter. It could not have been Judas not Iscariot, who was called Thaddeus, because he was an apostle, and the letter of Jude refers to the apostles, but does not count himself among them. All the research seems to agree that this Judas, or Jude, is the half-brother of Jesus, the reluctant convert, the brother of James. Matthew 13 lists the, the names of the four brothers of Jesus, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And so he calls himself Jude, he calls himself the brother of James, but of course, most notably, he refers to himself as the, the servant of Jesus Christ. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. Interesting, isn't it? If you were the half-brother of Jesus, you would probably lead with that, wouldn't you? I know I would. And so you might ask why then? Why wouldn't he? Jude the, the brother of Jesus. Jude the, the half-brother of Jesus. Same mom, different dads. Jesus was born of the seed of the spirit. I was born, Jude would say, of the seed of my father, Joseph. Jude the half-brother of Jesus. Jude the the also son of Mary. Now he says Jude, the servant of Jesus. Either there is a humility here that we must assume or there is more to it. I think there's an interesting lesson in here for us. Just briefly by way of application. When Jesus becomes Lord of your life, all other relationship to him changes. If he is Lord, the former is diminished by the new. For Jude, being the half-brother of Jesus, pales in comparison to being eternally rescued from sin and death. He is no longer the half-brother of an unusual boy. He is the servant of the King of Kings. This applies to you as well, friend. 
whatever relationship you think you have to Jesus before he becomes your Lord is nullified by your conversion. Are you the grandson of a pastor? The son or daughter of a pastor? That would have a great many benefits, I would think. I don't know. I don't have any pastors in my near lineage. But I would think that it would be a great benefit to someone being raised by a pastor or be the grandson of a, a, a pastor, one who is devoted to the church, not the least of which getting excellent sermons every night for family worship. To be raised in a home where mom and dad are committed to the local fellowship, where dad is a teacher and he is faithful to his calling of being a man of integrity, living a life that is above reproach, this would be a great benefit to a child growing up and watching the example and learning from both his words and his life, I would think. But if Jesus isn't your Lord, it doesn't matter what your dad did. It doesn't matter how many churches your grandfather planted or how many revival services he led. Who are you to Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? The familial becomes irrelevant in light of the spiritual fatherhood of God Almighty. You would not begin your salvation story by saying, son of a pastor, servant of Jesus. No, you would say, sinner saved by grace. Right? Yeah. Or you, Christian, may have spent many years occupying a pew, but it is not until you surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus that you are moved from doomed to saved. A loose affiliation with Jesus means nothing. Being his servant is everything. And so beware, your own loose association with Jesus does not take place of his lordship over your life. As it has been said, no one is too privileged to be exempt of the need to be converted. Not Jude, not Mary, and certainly not you. And so the opening few words provide for us a a bevy to consider. Jude, a servant of Jesus, the brother of of James. So you have the author. Secondly, let's consider together the reason, which is to say the the reason for the letter's existence. Isn't it one of the things that we are curious about when we get a letter in the mail? Why would we open it? You get a letter to Lorve from the IRS. <laughs> now, we wouldn't want to open that one, ever. But what's the question? What compels us to unseal the envelope and read its contents? We are wondering why they are writing to us, correct? So what's the reason? Why did Jude write this letter? Well, The answer comes to us in verses three and four. Let's read it again together. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to change my plans. I wanted to write something else, but what I wrote instead, I found to be necessary. 
Hmm. Well, what was this necessary thing? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints because for certain people have crept in unnoticed who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Heretics have crept in. The word heresy is used too loosely. It means a purposeful twisting, a purposeful deception, a, a, a tangible, obvious, intentional alteration of the truth. It's not just any lie. It's the truth askew on purpose. It's not having a, a, a shallow understanding of the scriptures It's not even saying things out of ignorance of the scriptures with the best of intent. It is bringing in in a a slightly off-kilter version of the truth. That's heresy. And that's what Jude is talking about. Heretics have crept in. Jude says very little about the teaching of these men. He doesn't say much about what their heresies are. He mostly deals with their way of life. Using examples from the Old Testament, he points out the fruit of their lives, not the specificity of their doctrine. He says in verse four, they're ungodly, which is a term meaning that they don't live under the ruling authority of God. It's, the, it's an adjective in the Greek, aseves, from the root word sebo, which means to show reverence. They do not reverence God as holy, which by default means they do not revere him as the ultimate and ruling authority. Be careful that that adjective might not be placed over your life, friend. Do you revere him as the ultimate and ruling authority? A false Christian is one who claims the name of Christ but refuses to live under his ruling authority. They are ungodly and they are among us. Jude says, their claims are not what matters, it's their lives. They are not submissive to God. You need look no further. Just as Jesus said in the famous Sermon on the Mount, beware of false prophets, you shall know them by their fruit Not you will know them by their askew teaching. That always comes along. But just as the serpent in the garden was cunning, so too are the subtleties of these heresies. They're cunning. Jesus warned of it. Jude speaks of it. The Holy Spirit says to us, put less stock in their words and more in the results of their lives. Then you'll know who you're dealing with. They are ungodly, verse 18. They follow their passions. Look at that. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. What passions? Well, it's whatever can take over a man that is not the spirit which produces righteousness. What passions have men sought 
for eons under our fallen human existence. To be blunt, sex, money, and power. Are these, are these individuals clamoring for influence? Are they pursuing sexual immorality? Are they loose with money? Then the fruit of their lives overrides their claims of Christianity. They are ungodly. They are slaves to their own passions instead of slaves to the spirit And then verse 19, they sow division. It is these who cause divisions. They are devoid of the spirit. They pit one Christian against the other. They mischaracterize and influence. Are there identifiable elements of their teaching? Certainly. But first and foremost, the fruit of their lives is the concrete evidence. Now, there is some mention of his teaching, and so what is the nature of their teaching? Well, first of all, they pervert the gospel, he says in verse 4. Heretics have slipped in. You'll know them by their fruit. You can dismiss their claims when their fruit is the overwhelming evidence. But... There is an element of their teaching that is identifiable. They pervert the gospel, specifically calling grace a license to sin and calling into question the identity of Jesus, those two things. Saying, grace, 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 right? God loves, loves, loves. So you can't say, my identity, you cannot say my urges that are natural. You cannot say my cravings that I was born with. You cannot say that those things are sinful. That's unchristian. Grace. The Bible says love everyone. That's a perversion of the gospel. Giving license to sin by wielding the word grace. all over our culture today, but we won't dive down that rabbit trail, not today. But there's that, and then there's specifically calling into question the identity of Jesus, which of course, as mentioned earlier, is one of the more popular heresies of the Mormon church, among the fastest growing, most influential, most populous, most committed groups in the United States. I looked it up uh, a few weeks ago, I forget the number now, the number of millions who are wrapped up in this deception, who mischaracterize the identity of the person of Jesus. There was, of course, the Gnostic heresy of the second century, which said that Jesus, he wasn't really fully man, so he could not have died a human death. He was a ghost. He floated. When he walked on the beach, he would leave no footsteps in the sands. And they would go, ooh, that sounds mysterious. (laughs) Tell me more. No, he ate and drank and wept 
and bled and died. And you see, friends, if he didn't bleed and he didn't weep and he didn't eat and drink because he's not fully man, then you have no hope. (laughs) You see, because he lived as a man the life that we could not live as our champion, our representative. As in Adam, we all fall. In Jesus, we can all be lifted up, raised to new life. But only if Jesus was truly man, only if he truly ate and drank, only if he left footprints in the sand when he walked, only if he wept bitterly, only if he was beaten and experienced the agony of the cross as his life was poured out and his blood was drained from his body. Friends, that's the only hope that we have. And so it should not come as a surprise to us when a popular heresy attacks the personhood of Jesus. They pervert the gospel, giving license to sin and calling it grace. They call into question the identity of Jesus, and that's really the extent to which Jude describes their doctrine. Now, these are not small things, and they will warrant our exploration as we make our way through the book. But Jude spends a lot more time alluding to the manner of their lives than combating the false claims in their teaching. Church, it is often the one you might least expect who is a wolf in sheep's clothing. Do you want to know why? They look like a sheep. I know, I'll give you a minute to soak in the wisdom. It is for this reason that the inarguable evidence of their way of life is offered as the litmus test and not the seeming earnestness of their claims. Anyone who has been married for any length of time knows talk is cheap. Don't tell me you love me. Show me. Right? Heretics have slipped in. That's the reason for the writing. They pervert the gospel, which is dangerous because before long, half the people in the country who think they're Christians don't even believe that Jesus is God. And most of them think that everybody's generally good. If you're generally good, you don't need a savior. And Jesus didn't come for the well. He came for the sick, right? Those who are well don't need a doctor. Oh, you're good? You're generally good? You don't need a doctor? Well, guess what? You won't get one. March yourself up to the throne of God and tell him how generally good you are and see how that goes for you, friend. So, he's compelling them to contend for the faith. The reason for the writing Heretics have slipped in, perverting the gospel. Contend for the faith that's been entrusted to you. The idea is, is uh, there's a great quote. I'll read it to you maybe in, in next week. There's a great quote. The idea comes, yeah, is a, a, a precious gem of incalculable worth has been put in your hands to safeguard, right? Fight with all your might to keep it safe. 
That's the idea that Jude communicates here. Contend, it's a familiar word to us. Agonizomai, I appreciate my, my friend Joel who remembers the Greek words. I give them to you, one of you remember them. <laughs> I'm kidding, but he always remembers. Agonizomai, from Romans 15, when Paul is asking for prayer, he says, strive with me in prayer. Same word used here, contend for the faith. Struggle to preserve the true gospel. Beg helps us saying this is not the same, it's not the same as having a spirit of contentiousness and I appreciate that warning. Doesn't mean we're looking for a war of words. We're not high-minded correctors of simple, childlike gospel statements. That's not it. But when the truth of the gospel is being twisted, we are being compelled to be painfully stalwart, holding the line of truth. And the implication of this, friends, is that to contend for the faith, for you to be obedient to the commands of Scripture will be unpleasant. Agonize. There may has, may has already come a day, there almost certainly will come a day that the unpleasantness of contending for the faith will meet you at your doorstep. How will you respond? Well, if the church is to do this, um, we could certainly use a little encouragement, right? A little something to, to buoy our spirits in the midst of all this bad news and horrible statistics and desperately sad state of affairs of heretics creeping in and perverting the gospel. And so what does Jude do? Well, like a good pastor, he does exactly that. He, he builds them up. And so you have the author, you have the reason. Third, we'll consider the people. The Living Bible says, uh, uh, the, the paraphrase of that opening line, Jude, a servant of Jesus, the brother of James, to Christians everywhere. And it's a good rendering because truly the letter doesn't have a recipient except all who are called, beloved, and kept for Jesus Christ to Christians everywhere. So, three adjectives that Jude, if you will, lays over you, Christian. He says, number one, you are called you have a tough task ahead of you to contend for the truth. So let me remind you first of who you are. You are the called of God. Called out of darkness into marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. Called to be his before the foundations of the earth were laid, Ephesians 2. God set his affections on you while you were still waging war and shaking your fist at him, Romans 5, 8. Don't kid yourself, Jesus said. You didn't choose me, I chose you. John 15 you were called it ought to be one of the most celebrated of doctrines the doctrine of divine election and yet because certain men have crept in perverting the gospel the doctrine of divine election has been maligned and replaced by a philosophy that claims that a woefully sinful man can make a righteous lunge toward the salvation of Jesus it's a preposterous notion 
a prideful deception, a worthless debate. He called you Christian. His kindness led you to repentance, Romans 2, 4. Alistair asks helpfully, is it some offense to you that God set his love on you before you met him? Would it be offensive to you if your spouse told you, I loved you before I met you? I saw you across the room, I heard your voice, I observed your smile, we didn't know each other, yet deep in the pit of my soul. I knew in that moment I loved you. If it would come as a welcome affirmation of commitment and affection from your spouse, why would we despise it when God sets his love on us before he created us? The only plausible answer is pride. Pride. We wish to have some credit, some ownership of our salvation. I ran to him. I repented. I, no, no, Christian, Dead people don't run. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Christ. We wish to have some credit because we wish in our prideful state to have something to hold and say, God, you owe me. I gave you my life. You owe me peace on earth. You owe me wealth. You owe me healing. You owe me recompense for wrongs committed against me. I can't remember what the phrase was or where the quote came from, but it says, has anyone given God a gift that would oblige him to repay? I think it's in Job. No, friends, when it's all the gift, we have nothing to brag about, and we love to brag. Now, you are the called, you are the revived, the rescued. Jude, as a good pastor, encourages his readers with this before setting them to a daunting task. Not only are you called, but you are beloved. You are loved in God the Father. The word beloved that comes up again and again is from the root word agape, a word we know well, right? It's that unconditional love of God. The phrase means that you are dear to him. When you take agape and you add the conjunction, it means you are unconditionally dear to him. The plan of God from eternity past is that he would assemble a people from every tribe and nation under the sun, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight to be called a people of his own. And it is celebrated in the revelation from every tribe and nation under the tongue. And God says, you are my people and I will be your God. I will dwell with you and you will dwell with me. No longer encumbered and weighed down by the sin that has so entangled you and stained our relationship. That is no more. It is defeated. It is cast into the lake of fire. We will simply be together because you are my beloved. It's great. It's great. This people who God has assembled for himself does not deserve his love. That's why it's unconditional. If we needed to meet a condition to receive his love, we would not be called the beloved. 
The only condition is to be in Christ. I would read to you from this book, but our time is our time is almost up, so we'll reserve that for next week. You are the called, you are the beloved, you are also kept for Christ Jesus. You see that in verse one? Because that's as far as we've gotten today, friends. You are called, you are beloved in God the Father, and you are kept for Jesus Christ. Interesting, isn't it? First Peter 1.5 says we are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You are shielded, you are kept. Acts 17.28, in him we live and move and exist. We are kept in him. John 10.28, Jesus says, I give unto them, I love the King James version of this verse, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You are kept by Jesus. And Jude says you are kept for him. Kept for him. Presented in Revelation as a bride clothed for a wedding presented to Jesus, purified by the washing of the water of the word. In Ephesians 1, we are called the inheritance of God. Interestingly, I like Wearsby says, in Christ we have a wonderful inheritance, and in Christ we are an inheritance. Let that just blow your mind for a few moments. I won't pretend to understand it fully. You don't have to either, just worship. (laughs) He considers you to be an inheritance what a preposterous thing to say dirty rotten sinner selfish and greedy and inconsistent foolish how can it be that he would call me an inheritance We are called, we are beloved, and we are kept. MacArthur points out that this is a, a particular this is a particular security in the war that Jude compels us to take part in, the long war against God. If you are kept for Jesus, you cannot be a casualty of this war. For to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I cannot perish in the long war against God. You can destroy my body, but I'll go and be with Jesus. I win, right? How scary, how powerful, how intimidating is an army who is not afraid to die? Hmm. Well, again, I'll quote from my favorite Scottish pastor, I think for the third time in a single sermon. You'll have to forgive me, um, but hey, look, you know, better that than uh, pretending like I wrote the sermon but I didn't, that, you know, chat GPT did or I downloaded it off the internet and just read the words, right? So you'd rather me quote them, wouldn't you? Five or six times instead of pretending like I made it up myself, right? You don't want me to stand up here and lie. I could go on like this for a while. I could do a whole sermon on the ills of plagiarism in the pulpit right now. I don't even need notes, friends. (laughs) 
Jude is sounding the wake-up call to a church that has been half asleep. Jude is sounding the wake-up call to a church that has been half asleep. How do we know this? Because certain men with perverse doctrines, perverse lifestyles and intentions have slipped in the back door. They are masquerading as sheep, but they are ravenous wolves. They are in our churches, standing behind perhaps once sacred pulpits, teaching in our seminaries, occupying television spots, selling their books with their big white smiles in the Christian living section of Barnes and Noble. Nobody's teeth are that white. Not naturally, anyway. Jude is sounding the alarm for a church who has been half asleep. It's a regular preoccupation of mine to think about when we lie down and go to sleep, how we are in our most vulnerable state. Right? If God does not keep our heart beating, we perish. If God does not keep our lungs breathing, we perish. If God does not compel us to roll over because we're pinching a nerve or we're pinching a vein, we might wake up and lose an arm. God's keeping us even while we're sleeping. But it is a vulnerable place to be, isn't it? Asleep. That's why we lock our doors and set our alarms and sleep with the pistol by our bedside. That's why we jerk awake at the sound outside the bedroom window. We've been asleep and something has crept up. And it's alarming because we feel quite vulnerable. On one of the first few nights sleeping in our house on Monarch Drive, we discovered that squirrels had taken up residence inside the walls. You want to know how we discovered this? Well, one time I was asleep. I think I was riding like bareback on a unicorn, you know, like spitting Skittles all over the place. And suddenly I was ripped from my dream state to my wife saying, Stephen, there's an animal in our bedroom. (laughs) And indeed there was. A little squirrel had made its way into our bedroom floor and he looked as alarmed as I did. So there in, yeah, he was cute, but he was inside my house at night. So we kind of cornered him, and he dashed for the bathroom, and he's off the toilet paper, up on the, the, the rod of the shower curtain, over to the toilet, and then in the corner, and, and my wife, I think, went out to my shop and got me a bucket, and I just kind of eased the bucket up to him and slid the lid behind him, and whew, I had him, put him on the back porch. I'm not sure how much clothes I was wearing at the time. But I was outside, it was dark, and him and I had a little moment. I released him, and he scurried away on my deck and up on the banister rail, and he stopped, and he looked at me, and I looked at him, and we had a moment. (laughs) It's like, you owe me your life, pal, right? Indeed, we were asleep. We were invaded. We were caught off guard. Jude helpfully sounds the alarm. Let us perk up and make ready to answer the call. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word and how 
the companion piece to Jude's letter in, in Peter, we find that phrase that I am so very fond of, that in your word we are given all things pertaining to life and godliness. We need not seek out other sources of wisdom or inspiration. We have it all right here. We need not be dulled by the regular reading of your scriptures for they are your words. Inspired, scribed onto paper and preserved for millennia. May we, by our careful observation of this letter, be made ready to stand as a stalwart guard against the invasion and attack on your word. Make us ready. Reveal to us the potholes in our armor and prepare us for the task that is before us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Let's stand for one last song, friends. I believe in Christ, risen from the dead. He now reigns victorious, his kingdom knows no end. Through his resurrection, death has lost its hold. I know on that final day I'll rise as Jesus rose. And on that day we will see you shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voice as one. Till that day, we will praise you for your never-ending grace. And we will keep on singing on that glorious day.
I know I look forward to that day, uh, that day when we are presented to Jesus as his inheritance, as his bride adorned, washed by his word. In the meantime, friends, if there are any of you here today who would like to pray with someone, um, after the service, we would love to, to speak with you, pray with you, answer any questions that you might have. So just look for one of us with a little blue name tag on and um, love to do that. You can also go downstairs to the little chapel room if you'd like a little privacy and, uh, and pray with someone there. Uh, for now, though, uh, let's dismiss. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lifts up his countenance upon you and give you peace. God bless you. I love you. face to you.